Well, dear friends, would you take your copy of the Word of the Lord and turn with me to Romans chapter 4 and verse 13. Romans chapter 4. This Easter morning we are dipping here into Romans 4 to hear about God's great promise to Abraham and God's great power to fulfill that promise. And then we're going to track with the Apostle Paul to consider the so what of it all. That is, what is God's promise and power in dealing with Abraham so long ago have to do with us? Or more specifically, you might be asking, what does this have to do with the foundational doctrine of our faith, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you're about to see. But before we read the Word, let us pray and ask the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we come as a needy people, and we pray that You by Your Spirit would grant understanding to our hearts. We pray that Your truth would shine forth in this Your Word. And we ask that You would use Your Word to enlighten us, to rejoice our hearts, to make wise the simple, and to sanctify us with truth. Hear us, we pray. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. If you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Again, Romans 4, we begin in verse 13, and we'll read to chapter 5, verse 2. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom He believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, that is Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. And as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. That is why His faith was counted to Him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to Him were not written for His sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have peace, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Well, praise be to God for His Word. Brethren, please be seated. 
we're going to get right to it. And we're going to see three things as we look at this passage together. And we begin with what God did in the distant past. What God did in the distant past. In our text, Paul is in the midst of a very detailed argument concerning God's gift of righteousness to His people through faith in Christ. And while there are some who are claiming that God declares us righteous on the basis of our works, that is due to our obedience to the law, Paul is adamant that justification, God's pronouncement that the believer in Jesus is not guilty, but right in God's sight, justification is through faith apart from works, or through faith alone. And to explain Paul's point, he turns back to Abraham's life. Long before the law was given, before Moses ascended Mount Sinai and received the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, God gave Abram, his shortened name, a glorious promise. God told Abram in Genesis 12 that he would be a great nation. Then in Genesis 15, God told Abram that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Then in Genesis 17, God changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. For as Paul puts it in verse 17, as as is written, God said, I have made you the father of many nations. Now note the language and how definitive it sounds. I have made you. It's a settled word, a certain fact. It's so sure, God speaks of it as if it's already happened. But at this point, though the Lord has been telling Abraham of the many descendants that would come from him, he has no children. Abraham has been waiting for nearly 25 years. The Lord spoke to Abram when he was 75 years old, taking him and his barren woman and telling him to go to a land that he would show him. And now in Genesis 17, Abraham is 99. And while there has been a struggle, no doubt, to embrace the promise of God, the bent of Abraham's heart was to believe. Look at verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations. Now in what sense did Abraham believe against hope? Well, verse 19, when he looked at his own body, he saw that it was as good as dead. And with this statement, Paul is moving a little farther in Genesis, Genesis 21, when Abraham is now a hundred years old. What are the chances of a hundred-year-old man fathering a child? Abraham says, Zilch, if it's up to me, my body is done. I'm a dry tree. I'm as good as dead. And yet, God's promise still stands. And Paul says that Abraham battled through his own unbelief, and yet his faith grows stronger. Verse 21, For he was fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. Abraham's faith remained steadfast through the years. His faith actually increased. How can that be? Well, because back up in verse 17 of Romans 4, Abraham set his eyes on the God who made this promise. What is God able to do? Paul says that Abraham trusted the God, note the language, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham reflected on God's nature 
and on the existence of the world in general. How did the world get here? One way. God spoke it into existence. There was nothing. There were no molecules needed for life. There were no atoms. Not that Abraham would know what atoms are. There were no pre-existent things in the universe that were already there as though that is eternal. No, God alone is eternal. And everything that isn't God, whatever that would be, from the smallest atom to the largest mountain, everything else did not exist. But God called into existence what wasn't there. He made heaven and earth out of nothing. He spoke and it came into being. And reflect on that a minute. He made light in the midst of darkness. He formed the sky and the dry land. He called the mountains into existence. And He said to the sea, Thus far you shall come and no further. He made all the animals, all the fish, all the birds, all the creeping things. And then as the crown of creation, He made man. Man didn't exist. But God made him. And how did He do all this? Well, He did it by His great power. God, Abraham is recalling, has the power to make something out of nothing. Brethren, this is the God that we worship. A God who is unlimited in power and might, who has zero hindrance in His strength. Nothing is too difficult for Him. That will be the word that God speaks to Sarah in Genesis 18. It will be the same word that the angel Gabriel says to Mary with the promise of the Son of God coming from her through a virgin birth. Nothing is too difficult for God. There is nothing He can't do. Now, that means this morning, dear friends, when we are troubled, when we're overwhelmed, when we're sensible of our weakness, and maybe even doubting the promise of God, what are we to do? Get your eyes on God's power. The God who says, I will help you, is the God who made heaven and earth. Is there anything He can't do for you? No. And it applies to Abraham's situation. The Lord our God has the power to take what is dead, Sarah's barren womb and Abraham's body, and to make life there. It's equivalent to a resurrection. Somehow beyond all human possibility, beyond what man can even imagine, a hundred-year-old guy with a ninety-year-old lady. They're about to have a baby. How can this be done? Particularly when this woman's womb was never alive. Children had been an impossibility for Sarah. And now that Sarah is past the age of childbearing, God creates life. It is a stunning display of His power. And it demonstrates to us, beyond all doubt, that grace is not secured by anything we do. The whole argument is saying, when man's ability was laid low, when man did nothing. And let me just really emphasize that and take this woman to her 90th year. When man can't do anything, what did God do? He did it all. It's equivalent to the spiritual life that thrives in us who believe in Christ this morning. What was our condition before we were alive with Jesus? We weren't mostly dead. We were dead. Well, that's what God did here. God gave Isaac. God kept His Word. And of course, with the birth of Isaac, we just have one child. We don't yet have Abraham being the father of a multitude. But this is just the beginning. 
God would take a state of death, Sarah's womb, bring life, and then multiply that one so that by the beginning of Exodus chapter 1, the children of Israel are said to be teeming or swarming. It's the language of Genesis with the swarming sea creatures in the sea. God is multiplying life. And then He's going to add to that Gentiles, saving Egyptians and Cushites who go out with Israel from the Exodus, saving Canaanites and Moabites like Rahab and Ruth. But then Paul brings us back to focus on Abraham in verse 22. And he says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is explaining the nature of saving or justifying faith. The faith that saves is a faith that rests in nothing that man has to contribute. It rests solely in the greatness of God, the power of God, and the promise of God. Abraham was totally persuaded that God was worthy of trust and he could raise the dead. And beloved, as we look at what God has done in the distant past, what do we see? We see that God has made life out of nothing. We see that God has caused a dead womb to conceive. We see that God has done the impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What's the clear message to you and me? This God is to be trusted. Are we resting our souls this morning on the God who can speak the world into existence? Are we putting our faith in Him who can bring life out of death? Are we fully convinced that God is able to keep His Word, display His power, and never fail His people even when death is a king of terrors that threatens you to you expire? Do you believe that God can raise the dead? Do we have this kind of faith? But then secondly, see with me. What, what God has done in the recent past. Now, it's not recent to you and me, but it's recent in Paul's argument. The word spoken to Abraham that his faith is counted to him as righteousness. That is, that God credited to Abraham right standing with God through faith. These words, verse 23, look at the text. These words were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. God's words to Abraham, which Moses wrote well over 3,000 years ago, are not dead words. Words with no relevance for you and me. So many people read the Bible that way. They read the Bible like it's an ancient story, and oh, that's nice, and then they move on. No, Paul says, this word is relevant for you and for me. The Old Testament record of God's dealings with His people is a living word. Well, how so? Well, here's the key idea. God hasn't changed. God's character and power, no different than they were in the days of Abraham. God is still declaring sinners righteous, not on the basis of their works, but through faith in His power and promise. Only our faith this morning looks to an even greater display of God's power and promise. You see, Abraham looked forward to the promise that he would have a seed, a great son to come, who would bless all the nations. 
And of course, that seed is Christ. But it started with just having one child, Isaac. And then God did it beyond all human expectation. He did the impossible. But our faith, in like kind to Abraham, looks now to the greater Isaac, to the true seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did God do with him? Well, Paul says, verse 24, that it will be counted to us, that is, we will be counted righteous in God's sight, who believe in Him, in God, who did what? Who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. You understand what Paul is trying to tell you, and you really have to think with Paul. It's a complicated argument, but he's saying this. Speaking the world into existence, and speaking life into Sarah's dead womb. Those were just previews. That was a trailer of what God was going to do. It was just a little foretaste of a superior act of supremacy. And what will that act be? Raising Jesus from the dead. Now brethren, our entire hope as Christians rests on this doctrine. The resurrection of Christ. This is the foundation of our whole system of belief. That if you call upon the name of the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus isn't raised, our faith is vain, our preaching is vain, we're still in our sins, and we are above all people most to be pitied. Why should we be pitied? Because we're living in a delusion. If Christ wasn't raised, and we're holding on to some fairy tale, some myth of supernatural power, we are basically crazy people. Isn't that how the world looks at us? You Christians are nuts. You believe that God raised someone from the dead. That's the response Paul will get when he's going to preach to the Athenian intelligentsia in Acts 17. You're crazy. But more than that, if Christ isn't raised, we are doomed to death with no hope of life at all. Without Jesus, death wins. The wages of our sin is death. And if death wins, if there's no escape from the pangs of death, but the power of sin dominates us and drags us down to destruction, what would that mean for us? Well, for one thing, we'd all be depressed. What a horrific reality that would be. Life followed by destruction. Life under oppression right now followed by eternal misery. No hope, no life, no possibility to escape. What is there to live for if that is true? But praise God, it isn't the truth. For the Almighty, the Sovereign, our God, did something greater than bring life to Sarah's dead womb. He took the body of Jesus, abused, ruthlessly scourged, pierced, experiencing not what no human body had experienced, the unabated wrath of God Almighty. And what did God do? God took that body under the power of death for a time and He brought it to life on the third day. Our faith this morning is not fixed 
on a God who metaphorically gives some type of nebulous idea of hope. Whatever that is. Our faith is not fixed on a God who pitches an idea of victory, of light prevailing over darkness, though we know not how. We're not left this morning with wishful thinking, with positive thoughts, with good vibes, like we're reading some fantasy tale with no basis in reality. Why is it there's a longing in the human soul to see light come after darkness? Why is it even your pagan friends will tell you it's going to get better? If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's, that's a lie. It's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. But we have a confident hope resting on true life from the dead. Our faith is fixed on the God who made the world, the God who brought life to Sarah's womb, and the God taking the lifeless form of Jesus Christ lying in that cold, dark tomb for three days and giving Him a full restoration, a bodily resurrection. Jesus was physically and fully raised. He was no ghost. This was not a hallucination of the disciples just wishing Him to be alive. He was truly raised. And what does it mean for you and me? It means Jesus broke the bars of death. Jesus shattered the curse. Jesus defeated Him who held the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus established a new order. The age to come, an age of restoration, of putting everything right, has broken into the present. And every miracle that Jesus did testified of this. When you see the blind seeing and the deaf hear and the lame leaping and the mute speaking and the dead are raised, what does it mean? It means the power of the kingdom of God has invaded the present darkness. And Jesus is the first fruits of a whole new order. He is the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in Him, though He die, yet shall He live. Beloved Paul is calling on us who have read the story of Abraham and heard the power of God in the past to see the power of God preeminently displayed in raising Christ. And as he points us to Christ, he explains to us what Jesus has done in two phrases. Look at verse 25. This resurrected Jesus given life by God's power was first delivered up for our trespasses. Jesus went to the cross in order to atone for our law-breaking every time that we've crossed the boundary line of God's law. Jesus came to deal with that problem. Now, how would He do it? Well, He, the perfect and spotless Lamb, would humble Himself to be the sacrifice for our guilt. And just like in the Old Testament, when you brought an offering for your sin, you took that sacrificial animal and the sinner put his hand on the head of that beast, confessing sin and recognizing this animal's a substitute for me. I think you imagine the moment where you slit the throat of the animal to press on your memory and indelible marks. You deserve to die. Well, in this way, Jesus was the substitute for sin. Only, Jesus is a real child 
of Adam, we might say. Well, he's escaped Edemic condemnation, but he's one of us, right? Jesus is one of us. Jesus has come as our representative. Jesus is like us in every way. He's not an animal which can't satisfy the justice of God. Jesus has come to be that Lamb of God. And it's as though we are taking our hands this morning, laying them on the head of Jesus, confessing our sin and guilt over Him, and Jesus dies to set us free. Now, we can't transfer our guilt to Jesus. But what is God the Father willing to do? The Lord is willing to take all of our iniquities and lay them on His Son. That's what God does. We all like sheep have gone astray, each to our own way, and the Lord laid all our iniquities on Him. God made Him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus came into this world as a willing guilt offering to satisfy the justice of God. And Paul, thinking back to this complicated argument, back in Romans 3, has said, Jesus is set forth as a propitiation in His blood. Jesus is the wrath-averting sacrifice to wash you. He paid the debt. And God's saving work is a work that upholds His justice. God doesn't simply forgive because He's just supposed to. Forgiveness is costly. It demands an infinite price be paid for sin and Jesus comes to pay it. But here's the truth in which we rejoice. It's not just that Jesus went to death bearing our sin. If He stayed dead, then our sin is not atoned for. If death prevails, it means sin still sticks to us. So for us to be right with God, Jesus not only had to be delivered up to atone for our sins, He also had to be raised to life. Verse 25, Jesus was raised for our justification. The sacrifice had to be accepted. And Paul says it was. Jesus' resurrection is the basis of our not guilty verdict. Jesus was raised to prove the debt was paid. Jesus was raised because He fulfilled all that the Father gave Him to do. Jesus was raised because with the curse of the law broken, death has no claim on Him. And by raising Jesus... The Father is declaring, My Son's atoning work is complete. It's acceptable. And the curse is overcome. The reign of death's terror has been broken. And this resurrection of Jesus Christ, dear friends, supplies the ground of our justification. I wonder this morning, are you resting in what Christ has done? Are you looking to Him alone to atone for your sin, and to be raised that you would be accepted before God. You see, our faith can't be in any goodness coming from us. We don't have any inherent goodness. All of our efforts at trying to do what is right are tainted. Think of your sin like fingerprints. We put the grimy fingerprints of sin on everything that we do. But even if we could do right, for a moment. We couldn't go back and make up for all that we've done wrong, nor for all that our first father, Adam, had done wrong. 
But Jesus, the risen one, he effectively deals with sin. And he works to make our justification possible. We, by grace, simply believe that God gave his son to wash us, to pay our bills, so to speak. And God demonstrated his accepted by receiving his son to life. Are you fixing your faith on the work of God in Christ on your behalf? That you, vile sinner though you are, and me too, that we can be clothed in righteousness divine, restored to life just as Jesus was restored to life. And that death can no more dominate us than it could dominate Jesus who reigns above. Death no longer has mastery over him. We're set free. Are you free? Are you alive in Christ? Are you like Abraham, in hope, against hope, believing? Are you fully convinced that God can deal with your sin and justify you by simply putting your faith in the Lord? Here's a God who gives life to the dead. But then finally, I want you to see with me, and this will be brief. What benefits does God give in view of all this work He has done? Well, look at the benefits God gives in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. If we have staked our souls on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then believing in the resurrection, believing that God has indeed accepted us in Christ, you can no more be a prisoner to sin and death than Jesus could go back into the tomb when the stone is rolled away. If you believe those things, what blessing comes to you? Well, four of them, actually. Verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. The resurrection of Christ has established our peace. As John Newton famously wrote, justice smiles and asks no more. Jesus has done it all. How do we know that? We know because the Father no longer visits His condemnation in death on His Son. Christ is alive. That means peace has been established. Well, if we rest in Christ, then we have right now and ongoing peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As heaven welcomed Jesus to the celebration of the angels when He ascended on high, heaven welcomes us because we're in a state of peace with God. We need not walk around with heaviness in our soul that somehow, some way, God is really just going to crush us and cut us off after all. No, we have an established state of peace and nothing can break that reality. Christ is the seal of our acceptance. We are not alienated from God. We stand in His favor. We cannot be mastered by death because Jesus' resurrection is the final verdict on the believer's peace. So we're having peace with God. That's a fact. I wonder, dear friends, do you actually believe that? Satan cannot wreck this peace with God. He's been whipped. You can't even mess it up because all of your sin is washed away. We have an abiding reality of peace. And that peace that's objective should touch our hearts. It should affect us. Yes, there are days 
when we don't feel peace in our soul. Yes, there are times when our sin overtakes us and Satan wags his finger at what you have done. What do you do when that happens? You say, look devil, my father has given his son to pay for my crimes and he accepted that Christ is raised from the dead. You have no claim on me. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? The answer, of course, is no one. Does that thrill your soul? Do you believe it? That you can no more be cut off from God than Jesus could be overthrown by death. He's the King. He lives. And He gives His peace to us. That alone is amazing. But there's more. Verse 2, Through Him, through the risen Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. When Jesus died, you remember the Gospels tell us that the temple curtain was torn in two. The bars that kept us out of the throne room of God were broken. And just as Jesus has passed into the heavens for us, entering as the champion of our soul, we now have access to come to God. You ever been in a hospital and you see those areas that are restricted for only the really high-powered nurses to go in? And they have their little scanner card to put up against the wall and suddenly the doors open and they go? Jesus has given us a scanner card. We all can go boldly to the throne room of grace. Now friends, any Old Testament saint could have prayed. They could call upon God. But the temple communicated distance. And there was no sense of completeness that a sacrifice that's sufficient has been offered. But with Jesus, the once and for all time sacrifice and the victory He accomplished has removed all ground of separation. So through the death and resurrection of Christ, we can boldly approach. Or to put it another way, the doors of the royal presence of the Father are always open. We're always accepted on the basis of Jesus' triumph. We are welcomed as the children of God. What a truth. Do you marvel that your soul, through Christ's acceptance, can be received into God's presence? That Jesus has blazed a trail for you and you belong there. We are near to God. We can approach Him as children approach a Father because our Heavenly Father is always available, always ready to hear from His children. And if that weren't enough, at the end of verse 2, Paul says that we stand in grace. We're in an abiding position. We're in the throne room, but it's not as though we're there as a tourist. I remember in 2009 visiting England and it just so happened that Buckingham Palace state rooms were open. And we got to go through and look at all the impressive painting and and the various um, tapestries, this beautiful display. But we were also ushered right back out. That is not the way it is with the presence of God. We're in a state of grace. We belong near to God. We've been transferred from the domain of sin and its dominion into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We're delivered from death and in a state of life. Now, we don't deserve this position, but God's grace has been given to us. 
And that grace, dear friends, abides. If we are in Christ, we are in Him forever. And His grace envelops us. So that Jesus would say in John 10, nothing can snatch us away. Nothing. Or in Romans 8, who shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Paul makes a long list. At the end of the day, he says, nothing. But then there's one final benefit. We close with this. End of verse 2. And we rejoice, or we exult. It's a stronger word. Joy on the highest level. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. We are in a state of grace now, which can't be broken, and a state of glory is coming. But our hope isn't like the way we use the word hope. You know, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, particularly like the rain it did yesterday. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Our future in glory isn't tied to a wishful thought which could fail to materialize. Do you ever wonder how weathermen still have a job? They're wrong so often. It's worse than a baseball player. They are wrong all the time. Our hope isn't like that. That's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. Our hope is rooted in an objective fact that Christ has defeated death. God has guaranteed our glory because He glorified His Son. And all who trust in Jesus, His death to cleanse, His resurrection to give life, we will all be glorified together with Christ. Because again, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So every day we live, we live and breathe in the living hope of the resurrection from Jesus Christ from the dead. New birth now, fullness of sonship to come. Raised now, raised bodily in the days ahead. Are you exulting? Not just kind of happy. Are you exulting in the hope of the glory of God? I want you to understand what Paul is saying here is, we don't merely get excited about God's power to raise the dead, specifically raising Jesus, one time a year. We exult. We're in a constant state of ongoing hope in the glory of God. Every single day, we live with resurrection hope. How does the hymn we're about to sing put it? As He stands in victory, Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am His, and He is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand. Till He returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. May we stand in such power. Brother, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to You for Your mighty work of raising the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Having delivered Him up for our trespasses, You raised Him for our justification. And all of our right standing is on the basis of what Christ has done. May we recognize the peace we should have in our hearts. May we, O Lord, boldly come into Your presence May we, may we understand that we are in a state of grace and a state of glory lies ahead. 
Oh Lord, hear us and bring Your Word to bear upon our souls. For we pray it all in the name of Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.